We're going to continue on in a series that we've been doing as a church for the last few weeks called Christmas Ornaments, in which we're looking at different values of Christmas and the ornaments that often remind us of those values. We are in uh, December, just a, couple, uh, uh, just a few days away from Christmas Eve. For those of you that are planning type, I wanted to give you a couple of heads up on our calendar here. We've got Christmas Eve services here at Desert Springs at 2, 3.30, and 5. In the back of the seat in front of you is an, in, uh, an invite card. Grab that card. Uh, you can hand it out. You can grab as many as you want. Hand them out to uh, friends, family. Invite them. If there's people that you don't like in your life, invite them. Just do it at a different service. It's going to be great. Uh, we would love to host uh, anyone uh, that you want to bring, and you can use those cards uh, to remind you and to remind your friends. And then on the 29th, so Sunday the 29th, we will not have our normal 9.30 and 11 services. What we're going to do on the 29th is from 8 to 1, we're going to open up our uh, worship center here as well as our lobby, and we're going to have uh, multiple prayer stations. So this is, uh, we've uh, been doing this every year for the last few years because it's good for us to take time to slow down, to reflect on the previous year, to pray uh, and give thanks, and also to think about and pray over what God has for us in the coming year. So that's going to be 8 to 1 on the 29th, Sunday the 29th. Just come whenever you want. Stay as, uh, as little or as long as you like. And then that evening, we're going to join together on the 29th at 7 o'clock. We're going to be led in worship by the Watoto Children's Choir. They're going to be here all the way from uh, Kampala, Uganda. So if you were here last week, you saw David and Abby speak. They're from that same basic region uh, where they're from. So they're going to be here uh, on the 29th. Love to have you join us again at 7 o'clock on the 29th. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, uh, today, uh, we had uh, talked about our different values uh, covering, um, well, let's see, actually two weeks ago, we talked about thankfulness. Last week, we talked about compassion. Today, we talked about joy. And so, initially, we were just going to talk about Christmas joy. Hey, here's the deal. I know that for many of us, Christmas is not a season of joy. In fact, Christmas, for many of us, this Christmas, or any Christmas, serves more as a reminder of suffering, pain, and longing than it does as a reminder of joy. For many of us, the empty seats at the dinner table are never more pronounced than on Christmas. We're going to talk a little bit about that today, this reality that Jesus does not want us to manufacture joy or force ourselves, you know, by sheer force of will to experience happiness or joy. But rather, joy is most of the time, if not always, experienced in the midst of longing, pain, and suffering. And so, as an encouragement to you, today's sermon will be called A Horrible Christmas Story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, for reals. We're really going to do a horrible Christmas story. We're going to look in, uh, it's, it's called the Gospel of Matthew. It's in your Bibles. In Matthew chapter 2, you have a horrible, absolutely horrible Christmas story. And the reason that most of us are like, are you sure it's a horrible Christmas story? The reason that you're feeling a little bit of that tension right now is because we often only read the first part of the story and we miss how horrible it is. Are you encouraged? 
So we've been talking about this thing called Christmas ornaments. The ornaments remind us of different values, of different people, of different times, events. Uh, I wanted to share with you some of my ornaments. Uh, the one on your far left is by far the best ornament that there ever has been. That's me in elementary school uh, with a little hot glue wreath. I made it for my parents. I gave it to my parents. I think my parents are in the house today, and so we're just going to have a conversation. No, no, don't clap for them, because here's the deal. Okay, here's the deal. I made that ornament for my parents. And after I moved out of the house, one of the first things they gave me was that ornament. That's not for me, that's for them. I got re-gifted my own face. So that's one of my favorite ornaments. Mwah. The one on your far right is uh, for my wife and I's, our, our first Christmas as a married couple. Um, as you could tell, it looks just like us. I remember wearing my white tuxedo. No, so that was a, an ornament to remind us of our, uh, our marriage, uh, which uh, we've been married since 2005, so we've had 12 wonderful years. Um, now, somebody's doing the math, but we had 12 wonderful years. Uh, and we keep going. The one in the middle is uh, our, our, after our first year of marriage, we, we bought a home. And in 2006, we, we bought a home. But the, the reason we keep this ornament is we actually foreclosed on that house. So just a few years later, we foreclosed on our first home. And that ornament serves to remind us of a good time as well as some pain. Many of us have these types of ornaments where we look at them and maybe they were given to us by someone who's no longer here. Maybe they were given to us by somebody who we don't talk to anymore. Uh, maybe they were reminding us of a season or a year in which we felt not only joy, but also pain. And it's this reality. In fact, I've got this quote. I, f I found this to be so uh, helpful, this quote by Ajith Fernando. Uh, he's a theologian. I believe he's serving in Sri Lanka right now. And he says this. I think this is so helpful. For those of us that are Christians, this is a helpful reminder. For those of us that are still trying to figure out who Jesus is and what it means to follow Jesus, I, I, just, I, I, just, I so want you to get this. This is so critical to understanding what it means to follow Jesus. This is what uh, Dr. Ajith Fernando says. He says that joy and suffering are necessary aspects of Christianity. Most of us, we recognize the first one, right? Joy. Everyone, I mean, you just ask most people, I say, you know, what's Christianity about, uh, all about? Well, it's about being happy. Eh? But one of the things that we often forget or often miss, especially in, in this particular culture, I must say, is that joy and suffering are, it doesn't use the, he doesn't use the word optional, what's the word he uses? Necessary aspects of Christianity. They can and must exist together. And I just encourage you, just read, if you have a Bible, read through your Bible and watch how many times joy is tethered to suffering. There's an infamous line in the scriptures, though there may be pain in the night, Joy comes in the morning. You will see, as if you study scripture, you will see that joy and suffering are oftentimes tethered together because that is the dynamic nature of who we are, how we're made, and what it means to follow Jesus. So right now, there are many of us who walked in today, we saw the Christmas decorations, and we, we rolled our eyes, and we heard the happy songs, and the pit of our, we just felt disgusted in the pit of our stomachs, saying, I can't sing that. I'm suffering, I'm in agony, I'm in pain. The longing that I experience especially, is, it's just so pronounced in this season. And if you're there, I want you to know that you're not strange. You're strange for other reasons. 
We all are. But that experience is not strange. It's not foreign to following Jesus. The very center of the story of Jesus is a crucifixion. And so who are we to think that following Jesus would involve any less pain, longing, or suffering? But there's joy in it, and I hope to show you that in this horrible Christmas story. Here's what I'm going to ask us to do. Uh, you all, did you guys receive ornaments on your way in? Did you guys receive, like, little paper ornaments? I don't believe you. There's a lot of dishonest people in this church. Show, show, show me you got the ornament. Okay, so if you didn't get an ornament, totally fine. Grab one from the host, uh, from uh, one of the hosts on your way out today. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to think about this question. How have you experienced joy? But I, I'm not talking about manufactured joy. I'm not talking about plastic joy. I'm talking about real, honest-to-God joy, maybe even in the midst of pain, longing, and suffering. If God maybe brings something to mind, you can just write that down. And here's what we've been doing each week as we've been talking about these Christmas ornaments. Is we've been hanging them on the, on the tree in the lobby. And so on your way out, if you have a time that you've experienced joy, maybe even in the midst of suffering, maybe just jot that down and we're going to hang that on the tree. And that, that tree is simply a reminder to us of uh, these values that we've been speaking of, of uh, thankfulness and compassion and today joy. But it's not, again, it's not a manufactured joy. It's a joy in the midst of suffering. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. If we have time, we'll do the whole chapter uh, so you can, um, you know, brag to your grandma. We did a whole chapter of the Bible today. Uh, I'm going to read it. We're going to pause in, a, uh, in, in just a few sections uh, to talk about it. But here's what I'm going to ask you. I want you to see what the author Matthew is doing. For the author Matthew is the one who has written this horrible Christmas story. But he's trying to reveal something about the nature of who Jesus is, the nature of humanity in our hearts, and how those two things weave together. Are we ready? Okay, for the four of us that are ready, I want you to look at Matthew 2. For the rest of you, um, are you ready now? Okay, yeah, so there we go. Yeah, it's, it's horrible. It's a horrible Christmas story, so I know how you feel. Here we go. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising, and we have come to worship him. Now I want to press pause, because I'm not quite sure we're feeling as tense as we ought to feel. Are you feeling the tension of this story just yet? Maybe not, and I, and I wasn't either until I started doing a little digging. I want you to think about something. Matthew is writing about a time in which the, 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 the city of Jerusalem was occupied by a foreign empire, namely the Roman Empire. And from what we remember about our Western Civ high school classes or the movie Gladiator, regardless of where you're getting your information, what do we know about how the Roman Empire kept its power? Was it through peace and kindness? Nope. What was, how did the Roman Empire maintain its power? By killing everyone who was a threat to their power. Okay, so the Roman Empire is occupying a city called Jerusalem. And the king of the city of Jerusalem is not a Jewish man. His name is Herod. Herod's been given that power by a bloodthirsty, ruthless empire. And uh, Herod... 
as now this, uh, how shall we say, puppet ruler of the Roman Empire, how do you guess Herod rules? With love and kindness and grace? No, he takes his cues from his boss. He maintains his power at the edge of a sword. You with me so far? Now, Herod's got to worry about all enemies, foreign and domestic. And one of the things that we may remember, and, and if not, that's okay. I didn't remember it until I refreshed my memory. If you, uh, if you looked at a map of the Roman Empire, the easternmost uh, reaches of the Roman Empire would be very near this big city called Jerusalem. And so you would, as the Roman Empire, you would be hoping that the king of that powerful city in your eastern flank, that he would serve to protect your empire from any enemies that would be further, which direction? East, okay? So on Herod's mind, I've got, if I'm Herod, who do I have to worry about? I gotta worry about all the enemies, all the threats to my power, not from the west, but from the what? East. There's a second group of people that I gotta worry about if I'm Herod, because if I'm Herod, I'm not Jewish. I got my power from who? The Roman Empire. Now, I'm ruling over a city in Jerusalem, if I'm Herod, I'm ruling over a city full of a people group called the Jews. Now, I'm not Jewish. I got my power from their oppressor. Who else am I worried about taking over my throne? Not just the enemies to the east, but also the enemies who live in my city, the, what he would call, the Jews. Two enemies. One foreign, people from the east. Second one, domestic, the Jews. You got me so far? Now, I'm going to reread this text, and I want you to see if you can feel some of the tension, okay? Oh, I got another thing for you, too. I totally forgot. Check this out. One of the biggest, like, baddest, awesomest kings of the Jews was this dude named David. And in fact, they had a whole town, the town that David came from. They had, like, this idea that David, who came from this town, what was its name? Beethla, Beethla. Behethla pig? No. Behethla dog. What was the name of the? Bethlehem. That's right. Bethlehem. Okay, I got it. Okay, so they had in their minds that David, who was the biggest, baddest king of all the Jews in Jewish history, came from the town of Bethlehem, what they called the city of David. And there was this whisper, maybe even like a prophecy. There was this whisper that one day another king like David, who would be the king of the Jews, would come out of, you're never going to guess what city, Bethlehem. You got me? Here we go. We're going to read this. Check this out. After Jesus was born in <gasps> Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of, now what's the title given to this man? King. King Herod. Wise men from the, okay, the reason we're not shocked is because we don't know what wise men are. This isn't wise guys from Sicily. This is wise men probably from Persia, so think Babylon. So again, to the east of Jerusalem, right? And I don't know that we have anything quite like it in our current culture, but it's basically um, uh, religious power brokers. So we got to remember that the temple and the palace were oftentimes interwoven in almost all these cultures, and the people who were ruling were often the heads of their religion. And so here's this foreign religious these, these people who are uh, power brokers in foreign religion to the east, a completely different nation than uh, Rome. In fact, we oftentimes use the phrase like, we three kings. You guys ever heard that before? We three kings of Orient are. You guys ever heard that song? Okay, so we don't know that there was just three. There was three gifts, 
So it's a deduction. The other thing, too, is kings probably isn't the best translation. Maybe a better translation would be religious kingmakers. So you're Herod. You're nervous. And some king, uh, uh, political and religious power brokers from the east arrive in your city. And what's the question that they ask? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Now, if you're Herod, how do you feel? You feel left out? How do you feel? You feel concerned. You feel nervous. You recognize that if there's a new king, a king of the Jews, if there really is someone who was born in the town of Bethlehem, the city of David, who is this king, then he's going to be a threat to my power. Do you see it? Now, the story is going to continue here in just a minute, but I just want to lay this on the table. If you're still trying to figure out who you think Jesus is and how uh, he would, following him would impact your life, I, ha- I, just, I want to be totally upfront. If Jesus is who he says he is, then he is always a threat to my power. If he truly is the king and creator of the universe, at any point in time that he wants to, he can contradict my will. And who's right when you're arguing with the king and creator of the universe? Me or him? He's right. Which means he's always a threat to my power. Following Jesus is not like following a guru or self-help teacher or advisor. Following Jesus is following, giving our lives over to the king and creator of the universe, which means it's a direct assault on my power. And we'll see how Herod chooses to respond. So let's continue in the story. We'll hustle through this next part. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed. Everybody say, no, duh. He was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. It's interesting that we use Matthew records that the term Christ, so promised Messiah, the promised one, right? Tethering to that, those whispers about a king coming from the city of David. Where the Christ would be born? In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will, be, who will shepherd my people Israel. This is interesting. The author Matthew is trying to show you something more about Jesus, that Jesus not only comes from the city of David, but that he's going to be the king, and he's going to be what kind of a king? A a shepherd king. This is probably why Jesus said things like, I am the good shepherd. Keep going. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so I too can go and worship him. Time out. Let me ask you a question. Whether or not you know the end of the story, I want you to pretend like you don't know the end of the story. Up until this point in time, we're not totally sure how Herod's going to respond, are we? And here you have Herod saying to these uh, power, religious power brokers, hey, once you find the new king, make sure you tell me exactly where he is. What do you think is going to happen next? Well, we'll find out. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star that they had seen at its rising. It led them 
until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fought, watch this, falling on their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, a couple of things. You guys ever seen a nativity set? You guys know what I'm talking about? And I don't mind that you've got a nativity set. We have, we have like 18 of them at our house. But I, just, I would just want to say, if the shepherds and the, and the magi are next to each other, maybe think about scooting the magi over a little bit. Because up until, like, we've got Matthew 2 here. And Matthew 2 is saying that they weren't in a stable, but the family was in a what? A house. Second, how far did the magi have to travel? All the way from the east. And so it probably took them some time. So uh, you can do what uh, one of my favorite people, Diane, who serves here as a volunteer, she actually oversees our funeral ministry. Uh, we had a, a, a nativity in the office. And, you know, it was like shepherds and angel and, and the little baby and the, the, to the mom and, you know, the Joseph and, and mom. And then the, 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 the magi were right there. And she took them and scooted them all the way across the desk all the way over here with a giant post-it note that said approximately two years have transpired between these two things. And so you get the Magi, but I want you to see, more important than the timing, how did Herod respond to Jesus? How did Herod respond to the announcement that there's a new king in town? At the very least, we're nervous. And what we're going to find out in here in just a minute is that Herod becomes murderous. Herod does murder, as is his way. He got given his power by the Roman Empire. He maintains his rule with an iron grip. When he hears about a new king, he arches his back and postures himself. Now, what is the posture of these uh, other religion, mystical, foreign power brokers? What's their response? What's their posture? If Herod's arching his back, what's their response? Did you catch it? Did you see it? Did you see how just brilliant Matthew is holding up to us the two responses each one of us can possibly have to hearing the good news that Jesus is the king of the cosmos? Every single one of us can choose Herod's posture or the Magi's posture. That's it. There's only two postures when you hear about Jesus. Because Jesus is who he says he is, I either arch my back in order to maintain my power and self-control, or as the Magi show us, worship. Now what's interesting is, and Matthew again is so brilliant, up at the beginning of the story, do you remember that Herod had a theological question and he had the whole temple court to ask? It said he asked the, 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 the chief priests and the scribes, where is the Messiah going to be born? And they tell him, did you see that he had all the theological information he needed? And yet his posture and here are these magi who probably, listen, this is, my, this is my conjecture. This is just my opinion, all right? But this would be super cool if it's true. They came from an area that used to be called Babylon. And at one point in time, the Babylonian Empire took captives. One of them's name was Daniel. And Daniel likely knew that there would be a king like David 
again. And it might have been through that remnant of Jewish followers living in Babylon where these uh, religious power brokers picked up on the idea that a star over that way might signify a new king. How much information did the Magi have? How much theological, uh, how deep was their theological library as it came to Judaism? They had this much information. So Herod's got all the information. The Magi don't know anything, but they know, they know something. Here's what I think Matthew might be pointing out for us. You can pass all the Bible exams and still be fighting God. You can pass all of the theology tests and still be an enemy of Christ. Here's the other wonderful thing. You don't have to test a Bible exam to follow Jesus. You don't have to know books of the Bible. You you might have heard even today, Matthew chapter two, I have no idea what that is. That's totally fine. You don't need any of that to follow Jesus. Here's what you need. Everyone, uh, Everyone who says, Jesus, I wanna follow you, guess what Jesus says to them? Come on, let's go. He doesn't say, well, figure out all the theology stuff first. So if you're here today and you're like, all this stuff is so crazy to me, but I'm really, I really want to, I'm so interested in Jesus. I want to follow him. This is what Jesus says. Great, follow me. Let's go. And there are some of us here today who have hardened our hearts. We know all the theological answers, and yet our relationship with Jesus is not existent. In fact, for some of us, it's contentious because he's a threat to our power. And you see it here. Which response will you have to Jesus? The response of the Magi or the response of Herod? The contrast continues. Let's go on. Uh, I think the next slide will show us here. Uh, And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And stay there. Again, this is Matthew tying this to the Exodus, tying this to Moses. Stay there until I tell you. Now watch this. What's Herod's response been so far? Arching of the back, contentious. Now here's where Herod executes his plan. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. And so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what may be spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. This is a horrible Christmas story. And so we've got the Magi visiting, right? And many of us end the story there. But because Herod is ruthless and because Jesus is a threat to his power, he's arched his back and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kill every boy two years old and younger in this village to try to protect my power. 
What will we as a people do in order to preserve our power, I wonder? Would we be any different than Herod? And so here you have Jesus, Mary, and Joseph fleeing to the West as refugees, striving to find peace and safety as a murderous dictator murders all of the two-year-old boys, two years old and younger, in this village. The end. It's interesting, Matthew, as a writer, is so brilliant. Because we're not done reading Matthew, are we? In fact, we've only just begun. But Matthew is so good, he's actually baked in to the Christmas story hints about how we're going to resolve this tension. Because don't you feel like something's unresolved? All these boys just got murdered. And Herod's going to get off. Many of us are living... Many of us right now are living in that tension. God, how could you let this happen? And that answer is unresolved. Unresolved. Matthew bakes in some hints. It's intriguing, isn't it? At the very beginning of uh, Matthew chapter 2, there's this title given to Jesus by the Magi, King of the, the next time. The next time Matthew uses that phrase. It's when he's talking about the scourging and the crucifixion of Jesus as they mock him and ridicule him. Matthew here is, I think, artistically tethering the Christmas story to Good Friday. It's interesting, moreover, do you remember that Herod, why was he so mad? He was mad because he felt like the wise men had tricked him. Do you remember that word, tricked? They tricked him. That word is actually a little more nuanced than what we have for tricked. It could also mean humiliate, or shame. Herod felt humiliated and shamed, and so he was furious. He arches his back, and in order to protect his power, he murders these boys. You know the next time that word is used by Matthew? The next time that word, shamed or humiliated, is used, and when it's speaking about how the Romans and the Jews were treating Jesus as they wove together crowns of thorns, placed it on his head to humiliate him, bowing O king of the Jews. You see, Matthew is tethering this horrible Christmas story, I think, to Good Friday. You think, Campbell, how are you going to resolve this? I ain't going to resolve it. You got to be honest with yourself that we live a life full of despair, disappointment, pain, suffering, and longing. Do you know that? I mean, I know you live in an American culture that's trying to tell you that we don't, but the reality of life is suffering. And I have no hopeful words to give you. We've buried eight kids in the last year in this congregation. Many more parents, friends, family, and loved ones. There are many of us who are frustrated right now because the the person that we used to have a deep relationship won't even answer the phone anymore. There are others of us who are just absolutely horrified because the doctor recently called or the doctor won't call because the doctor don't know. 
and all this death we're dealing with. Death of relationship, death of the body, death of a loved one. What do we do? Did Herod, the death dealer, win in this story? Is that what we can resign ourselves to? Matthew continues his gospel by saying, absolutely not. For you have two kings, the king of death, Herod, or you have the king of kings, Jesus, who conquered over death, not only by dying, but by rising. You will not find, listen to me, you will not find joy in Christmas unless you remind yourself and tether it to Easter. The birth of a baby born 2,000 years ago brings me no joy. The resurrection of the king and creator of the universe conquering over Satan, sin, and death who promises one day to return to restore everything that I've lost, to restore to me all the relationships that are broken, to undo all of the wrong and to build up all that is broken. I don't know about you, that's the only place I can find joy in the midst of suffering. There's a song, we played it a minute ago, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's a song of longing and it's a song of peace because God became one of us. I'm gonna leave you just with this little bit. Jesus loves you so much. Jesus is not far from you. Jesus is not casting a blind eye at your suffering. Jesus is not indifferent to your pain. Jesus knows what it feels like to be abandoned, betrayed, and abused even by those closest to him. Jesus knows you inside and out. And right now, Jesus knows you, is with you, loves you so much. Jesus knows the suffering, knows the pain, knows the longing. And Jesus has told you, the story's not over. One day Jesus will return, and he will restore all that is broken. He will make it whole again. Let this be our source of joy. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you. Even in the midst of all this chaos and suffering, we we turn to you. We need you. So we give ourselves over to you, knowing that you're loving, you're powerful to bring these things about. Even in the midst of the chaos and confusion, when we don't understand why it's happening, we know that you're good all the time. Give us a sense on the heart of this truth this morning. We pray this in your name, amen.